And I, to that point, I really hadn't thought of it as more than a passionate side hobby. But then suddenly I was like, oh, this could be my career. All I have to do is keep on doing this. You know, I'll do illustrations for magazines. It pays even better than comics. And that way I can make my weird comics and everything's going to be hunky-dory. But it didn't really work out that way. What does it take to become a successful writer or artist? There are some destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. And we're kept in our lane by the undermining belief that, as artists, we're somehow incapable of building autonomous, sustainable careers if we choose the work that's closest to our hearts. So we're going to tear down those myths and get the truth by going to the source. Incredible professional creatives who followed every path but the expected one to success on their own terms. I'm cartoonist, author, and coach for creatives, Jessica Abel, and this is The Autonomous Creative. Hi, everybody. Welcome. We're going to be trying a slightly different format today. This show is called The Autonomous Creative, and it's all about what it takes to build a strong, flexible creative career that gives you the freedom to make work you're proud of. And usually I interview some amazing artist or writer about their career. And when I do that, I follow what's interesting about their career and life and work. And I don't necessarily dig into what's on my mind. But you may know that in addition to being a coach for creatives, I'm an author, mostly of comics. You might not know that my producer on this show, Matt Madden, is also my husband of 21 years. And he's also a cartoonist. So we're a two cartoonist family. And you can see why this topic, how to build a career in the arts that actually supports you, has been a hot topic of conversation between us since we met almost 25 years ago. So of course, when I'm doing an interview, I will dig into anything useful that comes up in that context, but I don't always get the chance to dive deep into concerns I see coming up with students, clients, or friends, or even ideas I'm implementing or playing with in my own business. Yeah, I save that for Matt. I pigeonhole him while he's making dinner or over lunch, and I work through ideas about what works and what doesn't to make more money as a creative without selling out or giving up or getting totally burned out. And to be able to really dig into our topic today, which is a juicy one, I thought it would be cool to invite Matt on mic and invite you into our ongoing dinner table conversation. And the context for this is that I'm working on a new project, a coaching program called The Incubator, where I'll be helping people actually put the principles we discuss on the show into action. And lots more to come about that. Today's topic is how to make more money as a creative without totally overloading yourself. And we're talking about two ideas a mentor of mine, Tara McMullen, foregrounded for me that have been absolutely rocking my understanding of my work life. The first one I learned years ago, but I keep having to relearn and realizing I haven't actually fully implemented it. So number one, doing more does not lead to more money. It might even lead to less money. In fact, in my case, I think it probably has led to a lot less money. The second principle I learned more recently, and it is a 180 degree flip from how I and most artists think about their careers. So number two, choose and design your actual revenue producing activities starting from what you need, meaning starting from money. How much money do you need? Certain kinds of creative satisfaction, freedom and autonomy. And then you cross that with the time, energy and skills you have available. So starting from your needs and then designing your activities around your needs. And be aware, if you approach the problem this way, the end result might not look anything like what you're doing now. I mean, what? Don't worry, we'll get there. Okay. 
Hi, Matt. You ready to dive into number one with me? Hi, Jessica. I'm ready. Okay, so quick background. Tell us what you do and about your latest super cool book that just came out. So as you said before, I'm a cartoonist and I have a new book out called Ex Libris that came out at the end of 2021 from Uncivilized Books. It's been getting into bookstores and getting some good reviews and I've been really happy with the response so far. You've been on a bunch of podcasts about it too, right? Yeah, I did uh, a couple of, you know, mostly comics and book-oriented podcasts. Recommend If You Like with Brian Heater and the Virtual Memories podcast with Gil Roth. It's my job to brag on you. You've gotten all kinds of amazing quotes, like stuff popping up all the time on Twitter about how this is just life-shaking, awesome. Everybody should check this out. Ex Libris. Go get it. Go mm, buy it. Thanks. Uh, you also do, uh, in addition to helping me with Autonomous Creative the podcast and the company, you also do uh, translation, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I've been doing translation as a pretty major side hustle for the last three or four years, mainly with a company called Europe Comics that does uh, French comics translated into ebook PDF editions, uh, some of which are then go on to be published as books. And that's a pretty regular gig for me. And then I've also done some work with New York Review Comics uh, that I've been really proud of. That's the stuff that's very close to my heart. Uh, Edmond Baudouin's book, Pierrot, and a few stories with words in them from Lutch's collection, Mitchum. So on top of your comics and translation, we made a family decision when we moved to Philadelphia a few years ago, and I took on a full-time department chair job on top of my comics and my business, Autonomous Creative. Can you tell listeners about that a little bit? Um, yeah, so it really started even before we came to Philadelphia, the time when we were in France. I feel like when we were doing ostensibly this, you know, cartoonist residency, the two of us, and you had you were juggling two book projects. I was trying to get uh, a book project and a bunch of, you know, teaching and event projects underway in France. And it was getting pretty unmanageable, partly because up to that point, we'd been juggling parental duties pretty evenly. We have two uh, kids, by the way. Yeah, we have two children. And we got to France. They were two and four years old. And we're going to a little public school right in town. So uh, sometime during the first couple of years in France, I feel like pretty organically, it just started to make more sense that I would take care of the kids, you know, walk them to school, do the grocery shopping, do the majority and eventually pretty much all of the cooking and so on, laundry, like the whole thing. And it actually worked out pretty well because you really needed that extra time for me, it felt like it, it freed me up and when I did get into the studio to feel like I was contributing to the family and, and not have the stress of like, I got to do something that's going to make money and just like do creative work that I wanted to be doing. Yeah, it was kind of a gradual shift. We were very strict about 50-50 early on. And then like halfway through our France time when I yeah. started really getting heavy duty into Out on the Wire. And then we started shifting gradually, but at some point we had that conversation. We we're like, what are we doing here? We yeah. need somebody to be in charge of our household. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was really while we were still in France that we, we made that decision. But then when we came to Philadelphia and you got the job at PAFA, you know, then it, all the more like necessary, like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to do all the house stuff. I'm going to walk the kids to school. I'm going to cook. And in exchange, I will you know, try and carve out time in the mornings to work on Ex Libris and my translation work, which makes some money, but also I enjoy doing it. You know, Translation is always like getting paid to do the crossword puzzles for me. So um, it's kind <laughs> of a win-win that way. 
And I think that the other piece of this is that while we're in a pretty stable situation in our family, and I think we both feel pretty comfortable with the roles that we have, mm-hmm. there's still plenty of times when I certainly think this, and I know you think, I need to make more money. And so can you tell me when you think to yourself, I need to make more money, what's the first thing that kind of pops into your head? Well, I think there's two main impulses for that. One is that if I made more money or if we as a family were making more money, I would have just more time to make art. And, uh, you know, my ideal life of making comics all morning, having a nice lunch, uh, taking a nap and then playing guitar and reading for the rest of the afternoon, you know, would be sort of, <laughs> idea. um, well, I have to admit at the same time, there's also a kind of, uh, anxiety and shame impulse too, where I feel, you know, as much as we've decided like, okay, I'm going to be the home keeper and you're going to make all the money. There's a feeling like it's not fair. Like I should be pitching in more. And so there's also just that more personal pressure. Like, oh, I really got to step up and, you know, spread the, the pain around a little. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I feel similar feelings of guilt and responsibility toward household responsibilities, even though I know that it's my job to be doing my job so that we can keep this balance. And I I also, I hear from a lot of people in the Autonomous Creative Collective who I work with, uh, the same kind of feelings of wanting to contribute more to their household and feeling just, even if nobody's asking them to, and and really says, it's completely okay. What you're doing is absolutely what you should be doing. And this is what I want you to be doing. They still feel like they have to somehow, I mean, I had somebody say to me the other day, feeling like they have to kind of justify their existence in the household. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, it's like, it's a weird conundrum to kind of get what you want and be able to just make art and not worry about making money, which has been my lucky circumstance for the last, uh, you know, five years now, six years, really, since, since we're in France. But it but definitely comes with a certain amount of angst of feeling like, I, I feel like I should be contributing more. It's like this uh, quote I found in a book by Gilbert Sorrentino, um, who is also a weird artist dad, <laughs> among other things. And uh, he says this thing in one of his stories. It is the artist who lives the non-artistic life who is most aware of his painfully absurd position. And I really identify with that feeling of like walking the kids to school and hanging out in the schoolyard with other, other parents who have like, you know, jobs and have real lives and stuff. And, you know, this kind of weird feeling of like, well, I just, you know, I'm going to go home and draw comics on Bristol board for the rest of the day. It is a weird feeling. Although I have to say you draw comics on Bristol board, a small minority of the days, because there's still so much to do to run our lives. Yes, that's true. Uh, so it's not getting to that dream state of drawing all morning and having a nice lunch and then having a nap and playing guitar. I think you get to do that maybe, you know, once every two weeks on average. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I hear from a lot of clients when I talk to them about the idea of making more money is just a lot of shame around the idea of wanting to make money and, and feeling like there's something I don't know. There's something just really problematic for a lot of people about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I identify with that. I, I've never made art with the idea of like, oh, I want to make a lot of money from this. Um, but I, I'm comfortable with the thought of like, oh, I want to make a good living from, I want to be an artist and have a comfortable life. <laughs> you know, that that much I, I have no problem with. Um, 
but I also, uh, you know, I've made a lot of decisions over time where I'm like, well, I'm not going to draw, make certain kind of comics that might make me more money, like to do, I don't know, like uh, our agent Bob was bugging me to do like a kid's version of 99 Ways to Tell a Story at one point. And I was like, yeah, maybe, but it's not, <laughs> maybe not. if I do that, it would only be to make money. And which, yeah. I, you know, I think we're going to talk about why that wouldn't be a good idea to start with. But, you know, uh, to be an artist, I believe this 100%. If you're going to be an artist, you better do it because you love making art and you love being creative, whatever your thing is. And I, I think that's why, you know, like something we've talked about a lot and been frustrated with is like in art schools, don't teach you how to make a living as an artist. And I think there is a noble, if someone muddled impulse in there, which is like, well, because art shouldn't be about making money. But if you're a person, you need to make a living. And if you want to be an artist, you need to make a living as an artist or somehow so you can make art. And that's where it kind of like that, uh, that argument gets kind of uh, blurry, I guess. Yeah, really blurry, because I think that what it does is it sets up this thing of, I mean, what you said is absolutely true, that you should really want to make the work. But that then turns into, and if you want anything else out of it, it's dirty somehow, it's lower, it's, it's you know, spoiled or soiled. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, really poisonous. Because the thing that I see all the time is artists, young artists who I'm teaching as undergrads and older artists who are my clients, is people who are, wow, just like in such a financially precarious situation because they feel like it's not okay to focus on providing for themselves mm -hmm. as part of the equation and themselves and their family. Yeah. there And there is a bit of the... Um romantic artist in the Garrett idea there, which even though it's been widely and repeatedly debunked, it, it still is a deep-seated in a lot of artists is feeling like, you know, you should be struggling to make art. And if you're, you know, too comfortable, that's somehow going to like kill your muse or something like that. Yeah. Or that there's just something wrong with your art. If it's not difficult enough, there's, there's, it's clearly not real somehow. Um, yeah. And and I think what I find is that people, after they've been doing this and they've been, they are amazing at what they do, they've gotten so good at it, they get 10 or 15 or 20 years into their career and they're just like, screw this starving artist stuff. I am sick of this, but I don't know what to do, you know? Yeah. And I think that I feel like what happens is people sort of grow into the shape that societal expectations set up for us. You know, typical artist path for starting out as a professional artist is you make something and then you sell it. And you're like, wow, Eureka, I can sell a thing. I yeah. I have money now. That's amazing, which it is amazing, by the way. Totally amazing. Congratulations. It's awesome. Yeah. But then you go from that to all I need to do to make a living is sell more of them. Yeah. That's exactly how I got sucked into the uh, artist trap. <laughs> I started making mini comics around the time, right, you know, before right before we met, and suddenly started getting paid jobs to do a couple comics for money and then illustration work. And I, to that point, I really hadn't thought of it as more than a, a very passionate side hobby. But then suddenly, I was like, oh, this could be my career. All I have to do is keep on doing this. You know, I'll do illustrations for magazines that pays even better than comics. And that way I can make my weird comics and everything's going to be hunky dory, but it didn't really work out that way. Right. So 
why why do you think that is? Why did that plan that we both kind of bought into in the '90s and you know well into the 2000s? Why is that not a viable thing that you just like you start making stuff, you get paid money for it, so you make more of it, and then you make more money of it out of it? Well, I mean, it can work. For some people, it does work. People who become professional illustrators, for example, as their primary thing, some are successful at that, and they are able to scale up the number of pieces that they sell, the prices that they can sell them for, they build a reputation, they get an agent, all that stuff. That does happen. But the thing that I think we both ran into and that so many people run into is this idea that scaling something like um, illustration, illustration is a service, right? So you Mm -hmm. can sell your service for 50 bucks. You can sell it for 5,000 bucks. So you can work with different kinds of clients. You can change the clients you're working with. You can change the kind of work that you're doing, but you're still doing the service of illustration. When you're trying to sell comic books or prints or something else like that, for most people, and again, there are exceptions to every rule, for most people, just trying to sell more of those at some point tops out um, because essentially they are doing as much as they're willing to do as far as the operational side of their business. So uh, the way that they deliver the thing, the way that they make the thing, how fast are they going to make it? How are they going to ship it out? How are they going to deal with customers? And also marketing, like how, how much time they're willing to spend and attention they're willing to spend on marketing. Um, and while people, I, I'm w- working with people all the time who are like, I should be doing X, Y, Z as far as marketing. I should be on Instagram more. I should be sending out email blasts. None of that stuff's all that effective for them. And they're like, I don't really get it. And then so they just kind of don't do it. And they plateau out at some level. And so when you're starting and you're like, I'm just going to sell more of these things and it will be enough, you can end up with this big gap between what you're able to earn with those sales and what you actually need to make a living. It seems like that gap should get smaller, but then it just doesn't, or it doesn't do it fast enough. There's like a cap on the growth that I could never understand in the old days. Yeah, um, that's been a pattern that's happened to me. Like with illustration, it was definitely an explicit choice for for me. To be like, I don't expect to make money from doing alternative comics, but I can draw pretty well. So why don't I try and make money doing illustration? Which at that time in the late '90s was kind of booming. It was definitely a, a choice of like, I, I feel okay doing drawings for money when it's like illustrations for a magazine. It's like, like you said, it's a service. I take sort of professional craftsman pride in it, but I don't consider it part of my oeuvre as a cartoonist. So in that sense, it was like a logical decision to make. But I did quickly fall into this thing within a few years where, first of all, the market changed and suddenly magazines weren't paying as well as they did. But second of all, we were hitting that wall, I think you're talking about, of like, we didn't really know how to build it as like a self-employed business kind of thing. Or we would, we would, you know, meet other illustrators and say, how do you do it? How do you get jobs? And, oh, you get postcards printed up, which I probably <laughs> spent $3,000 on postcards. I don't think I got a single job out of any of the postcards that I ever printed uh, in my years. Well, as it's not that that doesn't work. Cause that, do- I mean, I think both of us probably got some work out. Of- we don't, I don't, I look, went back and looked at some point. We had a lot of jobs back then. And I'm sure some of those things came through that yeah, kind of yeah, no, I'm exaggerating, promotion. But-, but the point is that we tapped out on the amount of time we were willing to put into promoting the thing, partly because we're also still making comics. And this is what I wanted to get to. We didn't really know how to make a business as an illustrator, but we could have figured it out if that's what we were actually trying to do. But we were treating it as a sideline to support comics. And we 
had only so much time and energy we were willing to put into it. Mm-hmm. And so, and and this thing that you said a minute ago is I think something I really want to highlight where you go, oh, I can do that. I can draw pretty well. I can treat this with craftsman pride. Y- you did the same thing and and I did it too, but like you did the same thing with coloring comics, for example. Yeah, that's it's been a, a pattern in my professional life of trying to make a living. And I do think it's realistic in the sense that I was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm unlikely to ever make a lot of money as a cartoonist. So why don't I use my skills in ways that I can make money? So I did illustration for a few years, but then I got burned out on that because I was spending so much time trying to hustle and get work. Then I was coloring for Marvel in DC, which was pretty fun for a while. But in that case, I realized what grueling and time-intensive work it is being a colorist for for comic book industry. Uh, It's a tough job, you know? And meanwhile, there's also the issue of spreading ourselves too thin and doing too many different things. I think a lot of artists do this, where by the mid-2000s, I was still doing occasional illustration. I was coloring comics for Marvel Comics. I was teaching more than full-time at the School of Visual Arts, teaching drawing and comics. More than full-time, um, but not on a full-time salary. You're teaching no, at, yeah. on an hourly rate. Yes. Yeah, as an adjunct. And partly, again, trying to be realistic about it. And we're sort of thinking, well, the more hours we teach, like the better... Uh, insurance rate you can get, you know, and sort of trying to like be responsible adults in that way. But it led to a lot of frustration. And and uh, by the end of the 2000s, a you know, real burnout. And I felt really like at a dead end professionally, like, all right, I've tried all this stuff. And, you know, it wasn't a failure in the sense that we did well for ourselves in the 2000s. And we we had two kids and we have a house and all this stuff. But uh, but it was, it was just so demanding. And at a certain point, it was like, well, we can't build, we're, we've thrown everything at this that we can, and it's not, it's not going to build any further. Right. Cause we were trying to maintain all of these things at the same time. Yeah. So you're doing all that stuff. Meanwhile, I'm collaborating on a vampire comic and also trying to write a YA book and also doing a black and white literary comic. And, and you and then, I are making a textbooks together. Uh-huh. I'm making textbooks. I'm teaching also. I mean, we were doing so many things. And so this is where most people's go-to, I find, is when they think, I need to make more money, is I have these skills. These are things I can run out and get gigs doing. <laughs> I can I can get a gig here. I can sell a thing there. And somehow that's going to make it all okay. And the problem is that you get into the state of total... 125% max out time, energy, everything. Yeah. We were so burned out by the time we left Brooklyn and went to France in 2012. We could barely speak. We were just yeah. like, you I'm know. Totally punch drunk. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out that all these things we did were not bad and they were cool. They were very fun and exciting at first. You know, there's a famous quote that Robert Crumb said about comics. Comics is a young man's game or a young person's game. I don't get that's true because I'm 53 now and I feel like I'm hitting my prime as a cartoonist. However, I, I feel like he's talking about the hustle. Uh, and I think the hustle that you do when you're a young artist and you just take any job that comes your way and you're like, you know, I, I've never designed a movie poster before, but sure, let me take a whack at it. It pays $150. That's great. <laughs> and there's real value in that. There's real value in that because the, that kind of thing of saying yes to things like that, that's how you figure out what you do want to do. And right. that's how you make new connections and go new directions. And all kinds of doors have opened up for us because of saying yes to things. And I absolutely encourage that. Totally. But there's an expiration date on that, on that kind of work style. And as you get older, and especially if you start a family or something, it just becomes difficult and very unsustainable, I find, for, for most people. 
Certainly was for me. For sure. And so what I find is that most artists, and I include us in this, hit a plateau of earning that's based on the relationship between how they sell whatever it is that they're doing, all of the things that they're doing, what they're selling, what kind of audience they're selling it to, and their pricing. It's a it's a system, right? It's a mm-hmm. system with many parts that all relate to each other. And there's this quote that when I let this sink in, it just was like, oh my God. <laughs> Which is, every system is perfectly designed to get you the results that it is actually currently getting you. Meaning what? That it's like self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing? Basically, the things that you're doing are producing the results that you're getting, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm just going to say, like, I'm going to make some mini comics for the next indie comics festival and sell them for $250 each, then I'm going to make $25. Yeah. And thinking that what I'm doing right now is selling mini comics and doing some illustration and doing some teaching and doing some coloring. And I'm working as a barista on the side to make ends meet. And somehow that's going to evolve into something that feels flexible and sustainable and well-resourced. No. Right? So it tops out at some point where that's the plateau of like, I can't do any more in this way. That's the system that you've built for yourself. And it's not your fault if this is ringing a bell with anybody who's listening. I mean, Matt and I are talking about this. We did this. Almost everybody I see does this. I feel like the artist's problem is for for very good reasons, we start off with this idea of, I want to make a thing. I I have a thing I want to make. I want to write a book. I want to make comics. I want to make paintings. I want to make sculpture or whatever it is. You have the things you want to make, but that I want to make a thing comes packaged. And this is a metaphor I came up with the other day, and it's a little awkward, but just go with me here. Okay. It comes packaged inside a box and there's one ladder inside the box with you. That's the career ladder that leads up out of the box, but it doesn't really quite reach the top right? And you're inside this box that's made up of our received ideas and our shared societal understanding of what success as this particular kind of artist looks like. And so getting back to this starving artist myth, that's part of the box. It's based on received ideas. And so you make all these assumptions that you need to work the way other people work. You need to follow this one path, this one ladder for success. And so you just like end up running in circles, trying to do all the things people say you need to do without really thinking about what might be outside that box that could help you make a living. And most people just don't question the box. And that's where all the guilt and the shame comes from. They feel like it's their fault that they can't make the ladder work for them. But it's not their fault that no one ever mentioned or taught them that there might be other ways to go about this, like that there's a box and that it is okay to put their own financial and mental health needs first. Yeah, because I I mean, I'm thinking about, again, that our time in France was very pivotal in many ways, but and partly getting away from our the New York grind for a few years and having a little bit of a breather gave us a lot of perspective on that. And I definitely remember you being very frustrated with hitting that that plateau and not knowing how to get beyond it. Um, and that became your next creative project was like, I'm going to get out of this box or whatever, you know, <laughs> build a elevator. And I remember feeling just so powerless and befuddled because I'm like, what what do I do? I've, I've tried to be realistic. I, I've done all these, you know, I've sort of diversified, tried different stuff, teaching and translation, uh, all valuable things. That I feel like I've, you know, contributed good things to the world. And yet, you know, we're talking about how we're going to be able to sustain our 
lives and and have a, and support our family and stuff. You know, it was like really disheartening because I feel like at a certain point, long before me, you continue to be many steps ahead of me on all this stuff. What was it that changed your that made you realize, okay, this is the direction I'm going to go. That's going to ch- like change this mindset that we ha- that we're stuck in this plateau mindset. That's a really good question. I mean, this was basically in 2014, 2015, as I was finishing Out on the Wire, Mm -hmm. which is a book that I'm immensely proud of and really, really glad that I did. But it pushed me to the brink. The the drawing schedule on that, it's a 200 plus page book. And I had to finish the whole thing in, I think, eight months. And you helped, you drew backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I had interns helping. And I was still working eight to 10 hour days every day, um, trying to just crank out these pages. And I just okay. thought, I can't, I, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this. Even all the things that I love about the book and all the things I'm proud of, the different sort of visual metaphors I came up with and all these ways to talk about storytelling in a visual way, it just was like unsustainable. And we were at the point of thinking like, okay, well, what's, what's my next book? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I was starting to think about proposals and sending proposals to our agent. And I... I would have had to have my next book proposal in the mix. And somewhere in there, we decided to do uh, a podcast. Well, that was a marketing idea. Yeah. (laughs) It turned into an entire creative project on its own. That again, I'm really happy I did it. But oh, wow, that was a lot. When I look back at that time, though, I feel like that podcast was a kind of pivot point for you and kind of getting into coaching and all the stuff you've been doing since really since we did that podcast. Right. So this is the Out on the Wire podcast. So for anybody who hasn't listened to it, you should. If you're listening to this, you would love that. Um, It's a podcast that works through the principles of the book Out on the Wire, which is subtitled The Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio. So it's about long-form audio storytelling, but it's also just about storytelling in general. And I wanted to translate that to a more general audience and let people help people understand how the principles I was writing about in the context of podcasting applied to comics, you know, screenwriting, any other writing. And so with Benjamin Frisch, who was my producer, and with Matt, we designed a podcast where the um, primary episodes were fully scripted, uh, fully produced music, soundtrack, the whole deal. And then they were interspersed and they had challenges at the end. So there's a pedagogical element uh, where I said, so try this yourself. And then we created an online group uh, for, for listeners to join. And then we would pick work from that group and do these live episodes where you and me and Ben would critique the work mm-hmm. and and bring on the listener to talk to them about the work. And that really was, and I think you're right about this, this is the first time I was taking a coach role mm-hmm. as opposed to a teacher role. Because I'd been a teacher for a long time and it was an easy transition to make. But yeah. this kind of opening this up to the world and inviting people in was a little scary initially. Mm-hmm. But it worked out so well. People were so great. And a bunch of people who are in that group are still people who I work with today. Right. Um, I feel like we weren't aware of it at the time, but in retrospect, it does seem like that was sort of a a shift into this other way of of teaching and using your communication skills and your way of helping people, which you you like to do. So what I want to get to here to make sure that we bring this in is like my own story is I did that and I then experimented my way through how I was going to turn something like that experience into what turned into an online course called the Creative Focus Workshop and is now an online program called the Creative Focus Workshop. It's part of other things that I do. I didn't know where I was going with this when we started it. 
but I was ready because I was so burnt out and so sick of working the way I was working. I was ready to change how I was in the world as a professional completely. Mm-hmm. And that's what it took. So your question was like, how did you do this? Well, the, what got me to that point, which was pretty successful by cartoonist terms, you know, yeah. I had decent advances on my books. People were excited about what I was doing. I had a lot of readers, a lot of excitement about my work. I was able to parlay that into speaking gigs and workshops and things like that. But it it just, I, there was nowhere to go from there, you yeah. know? And the, what got me there could not get me to the next level. Right. You know, you can get to a certain level just by bootstrapping, just by whatever you're already good at, just kind of showing up, sharing good stuff, but that it gets to you some point and okay, next level has to be something else, has something different. And so I was ready to be open-minded and flexible about what that looked like. And and you're right that the podcast pointed the way toward where I eventually landed. All right. So there was a, a second thing that you had learned that you were going to talk about too, right? About uh, designing your work life and making everything else conform to that, to your ideal idea or something like that. What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I'm going to have to explain this much better, clearly. Uh, so I don't think I did this then because I didn't understand. I definitely did not understand this idea back then, but I was kind of doing it a little bit where I was saying, all right, I need to redesign the way I'm working around my financial need, as opposed to starting with, I have an idea for a book. Again, like I feel like most artists are in a position, artists, creative people, you know, anybody who's trying to make creative work, they start off with, I want to make a thing. But then over here on the other side, they've got their financial needs maybe physical limitations, uh, requirements for how much time and flexibility and freedom they need, also their desires for whatever it is. And they just kind of try to force those things together. Yeah. And so the second principle I wanted to bring up is this mind-bending concept. Instead of starting with, I have a thing I want to make, start with reality. Start with Mm -hmm. what is actually your life (laughs) and what are the things that matter to you and go from there. And so I wasn't quite doing that in 2015, 2016, as I started down this path, but I was closer. It was a step in the right direction. So the idea behind this is essentially thinking like, okay, if I need to make whatever, $5,000 a month or something, or whatever the number Mm -hmm. is, right? Right. I only have 15 hours a week I can work on this because I I have caretaking responsibilities and a chronic illness or something. Right. I need it to be something that is related to my primary skill set as an artist. I love to work with people or I hate to work with people, whatever it is, right? So all the things that are about who you are, when you put those things down, you think that through, you're like, well, what, what could that look like? So it's kind of an audit. I mean, once you know all that and you have it in front of you, then you can run some numbers on what you're thinking of doing to fill the gap and make more money. And that's when comes the likely realization that your plan, like get a book advance or start a second podcast or start a Patreon, may not make all of those conditions come together and work. And that's when it's time for flexibility and creativity. Mm-hmm. It's not a blank canvas, right? You're starting with a whole bunch of things that are going to indicate different directions that you can take. And I actually wrote a blog post about this that I think I'm going to probably put up at the same time as this podcast mm-hmm. goes live, where I, I list a bunch of those factors and talk about it a, bit, a little bit more specifically. But basically, this, the, the main thing to take away is this idea that if you start with what's necessary and then try to build something that will 
come up to meet it, you're a lot more likely to make those things come together than starting the other way around. Mm-hmm. It takes that strategic point of view. So um, we were maybe this would be a good spot for you to talk about something we've been talking about a bunch lately, which is the idea of uh, making some money versus making enough money uh, and how that plays into this idea of um, designing the life that, that you want. What, what do you, what's the difference between making enough money and just making well, some I, money? Well, I think it's what, you've already ta- what we've already talked about, that some money is what happens when you sell some stuff or you get a gig and you think, wow, this is amazing. But it just is so far from enough money. It traps you into thinking, if I just do more, 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 more stuff, you know, talk to more people, more marketing, mm-hmm. more whatever. Do a Kickstarter, um, start a Patreon. Right. Uh, the long list, you know, I'll take my stuff and put it up on, I don't know, like stock photo sites or something. Right. And none of those things will pay off uh, and get you to the point of enough money. And so it's not worth it. So you have to turn it around and think about what you need. But if you are, you know, we weren't starving. We were doing fine financially, but we were burnt to a crisp trying to do it all. Hard work is a factor, and I don't want to denigrate anyone out there who thinks of themselves as a hard worker. I am too. But the point is, hard work offers diminishing returns. It's not like a one-to-one. You work harder, you get better, things get better for you, you know, in in like an equal relationship. Hard work that is just never enough. You'd like it's an bucket that never gets filled and it never really meets your needs, particularly financial needs, that's what puts you on a bullet train to burnout, as Spike Trotman put it. I like to think about the value of being well-resourced, meaning having what you need that can give you the space financially and also in terms of bandwidth to do what you care about and to really you know, be the person you want to be in the world. So if you're like a parent and you are stressed out, you know it's more likely you're going to snap at your kids. You're not going to have the bandwidth to slow down and respond and support them like you want to. If they're acting out, you're just going to be yelling at them or whatever. And it feels ter- terrible, but it's because you just you don't have the room. And so you you need to be well-resourced to show up like you want to for your kids. And a lot of artists value making their work available for low-income people. And I absolutely do too. I mean, I'm doing this podcast for free because I want it to be going out to as many people as possible. But if you're financially stressed, you can't give your stuff away. If you prioritize becoming well-resourced financially and you make choices that put making income for yourself high on the list of priorities then you can actually be more generous and make things that are free or low cost to support people who don't have the means. And I think we lived in that stressed out, overburdened way for so long, we actually cramped our ability to envision what resource would even mean for us. I mean, I still struggle with that. What could it look like to be well-resourced? Truly well-resourced as far as time and freedom. And that really can um, cramp you when it comes to designing something that's going to work. So think think bigger than you think you want to think. All right. <laughs> that's what so I'm like so if I'm a I'm a reasonably well-known indie cartoonist uh, and I've done some teaching and some translation and stuff, I none of those things are working out financially. What what kind of option would I have to like get to that next level where, you know, uh, say I I had, you know, I was single or whatever uh, and uh, we get divorced next week. And I have to, ru- honey. I have I have news. <laughs> run the family. Uh, you know, I got to suddenly make you know a hundred thousand, hundred whatever a year. What would I turn to? Because if I, I look at my I, my list of comic book ideas, uh, I can tell that's not going to bring in that kind of cash. 
Right. And I, also, and I also don't want to go back to just having an adjunct teaching job at an art school. You have to think outside your box. And I mean the box I was talking about earlier. <laughs> that box of expectations of what it's going to look like. You have to be flexible, really flexible. And honestly, for people who are selling really low-cost products, um, like comic books, or very low-profit services like adjunct teaching, um, those things probably aren't going to ever provide what you want it to provide. And frequently, the answer to this is services. It's That's why some illustrators who focus on illustration and build that out can do okay. It's not that it's easy. It's not. But you know, they can do all right. And so thinking about what is your skill set? If you're somebody who's mid-career as a creative professional, you've got a really cool skill set. And I know you may not think that and people won't pay for it. But if you think really openly about what that looks like, um, thinking about one-to-one services where you can help somebody with something, make something for them, uh, coaching, teaching, all those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of things that are going to solve this a lot faster because there are only two ways to make more money than you're making now. One is more, sell more. And if you do the math, you know that the math is punishing in terms of really low cost or low profit offers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is charge more, right? get paid higher. So you have to raise prices. And if you're like, well, but I sell comics and you can't really charge more than whatever, 30 bucks for a hardcover, that's not going to do it. Yeah. So you got to think, well- I can well, say that as a success story where like I actually earn royalties off of one of my books. It's like a dream come true for any author really, but it's really like, it's like 500 bucks a year. It's, it's not, it's like a little funny money once a year. It's not something that's sustainable. And we were just talking about the other day, I know we got to wrap up here, but you were saying, we were talking about this very issue. And I'm always thinking about like, well, maybe I'll offer a workshop or try and, you know, teach a class here or there. Uh, and you were like, just what about just doing a one-on-one, you know, coaching or teaching kind of thing? And I, it's, it's an obvious question, but I honestly hadn't really considered it. And now I am. So, you know, to, to be <laughs> yeah. continued to that. Yeah, exactly. But I was like, suddenly like, oh yeah, I guess like I could. help somebody make their book. Yeah. Coaching someone. And you're like, oh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so it's very hard to uh, get get out of that mindset, I think. I don't pretend this is easy. It's a mindset question, but then it's also literally a strategic question. To get back to what we said at the beginning here, um, I am developing a new coaching program, which you will hear plenty about, called The Incubator, which is is for this. It's in order to help people break out of this box and uh, design a business that actually is built to meet their needs. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. And that's that's going to be coming in the next couple of months. But this is this is mission driven for me. You know, I want as many creatives as possible to be autonomous, be able to run their own lives, be able to pay for their lives, feel in control of what's going on around them and and be able to make their work. And yeah. It doesn't necessarily look like you get to draw a morning and play guitar all afternoon. We may not be able to arrange that. It may have to be a little bit different from that. But that's you know, you know once a week. If I can do that once a week, I'm pretty happy. Actually, I find. Yeah, and I think that means that you can be successful. Like yeah. <laughs> willingness to to flex to that extent means that you can make that actually happen. So, 
huh, this was fun. This was very experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, we may do another one of these. I have another right. idea that I want to talk about. Okay. Let's talk about it over dinner. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to hit my recorder and you'll be like, please don't let anybody hear this. We're talking and chewing at the same time. I am going to have a few resources for listeners that we will put in the show notes. I have, as I said, I mentioned that I have a new blog post that's about how more is not the answer and gives you a little bit more structure around thinking about how to come up with new, different idea. That's number one. Number two, I'm going to be debunking or at least offering missing puzzle pieces to the thousand true fans theory pretty soon in another blog post, I think next week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's very, and fun. That's like, there's calculators and numbers and all this stuff. And I'm also creating a, a calculator to help you think through your specific relationships between what you need and what you're actually doing. Um, and a, and a class, a free class that's going to be coming up. So all of that's coming up. And we will, as a listener of The Autonomous Creative, we will make sure you know all about it. So thank you for being here today. Matt, thank you for doing this with me. Sure, it was fun. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe I'll close out Mark Marin style with a little guitar. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Poyajandian. And our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden. And I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as the links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And please take a sec to pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And we absolutely love to hear your reactions and takeaways on Instagram. Tag us at Autonomous Creative. See you next time. All right, here's a little guitar outro.